listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are excited. We have Dr. Peg O'Connor joining us today, and we are going to talk about AA and 12 Steps. I'm going to turn it over to her to give her a proper introduction. Well, gosh, thanks for having me on. Full disclosure, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a philosopher, but don't stop listening yet. I, I think the most germane and relevant thing here is I'm an alcoholic. I sobered up about 30 five years ago. And working on addiction has become a passion for me in the sense that I think philosophy has a lot to offer people struggling with addiction and recovery. And that addiction really is a problem of living. And it's a problem of finding and making meaning and value. And no discipline is as well positioned to do that as philosophy. We're the oldest discipline. So we've been we've been grappling with these questions for a long time. And, and I just feel grateful that I am able to share the wealth of philosophy with others. We're so lucky to have you. I mean, your bio is very, really extensive. So we invited you to invite your, to introduce yourself so that you could speak about yourself in the way you wanted to. But let's just make it clear to our listeners that Peg is very educated and well-written and published. And in fact, about to, to release, or you have released a book. And I think that's going to be the topic of our conversation today. And you've written other books. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about the books you've written? Well, I've, I've written some pointy-headed academic tomes that maybe about seven people would find interesting. And and I love those books. I, I love the work I do. Actually, I work in uh, ethics and social and political philosophy. So I, I write a lot about oppression and privilege and resistance that I think that those are really crucial, crucial conversations to have with, with people. So I try to talk about those things in ways that are accessible. But the two books that I've written on addiction, the first one is called Life on the Rocks, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery. And the one that's just out in August is called Higher and Friendly Powers, plural, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. And these books are, well, it, it turns out, I think that many people who write end up writing about themselves. So the Life on the Rocks books was trying to take some of the really important concepts in Western philosophy and use them to help illuminate the dynamics of addiction and the hope and trajectories of recovery. And the book Higher and Friendly Powers looks at the great American philosopher, psychologist, physician, yes, one person, all of those degrees, William James, who lived between 1842 and 1910. And it was William James who coined the term higher powers, but he talked about it always in the plural. And Bill Wilson and the founding of Alcoholics Anonymous was struck by that term, and he took it and it became a cornerstone of the 12 steps. So this book, Higher and Friendly Powers, is written, as I said, we all write for ourselves. I wrote it for myself and people like me, people who were never able to find a home in AA because of the God language, whether it was coming in with pre-existing beliefs. I had been raised Catholic and went to 13 years of Catholic school 
school, people coming from different faith traditions or people who don't have a particular faith tradition might identify as spiritual rather than religious, which actually numbers from Pew Research shows that people it's trending more in that direction, that the mainline Protestant denominations are losing affiliation and more people are identifying as spiritual. So my hope in this book is to be attractive to people who have struggled with AA and opt out of it and don't find any benefit because of the God language. I'm going to try to make the notion of higher and friendly powers more inviting and inclusive and expansive. And also that this book would be interesting to people who are right at home at AA and are very comfortable with that God language to learn some about a book that Bill Wilson himself recognized as being a cornerstone of what became the Alcoholics Anonymous program. And that Bill Wilson regarded William James as a co-founder of AA, even though he had died 25, 30 years before AA came into existence. It's really fascinating. And I found it really interesting to learn about William James because he played such a massive role for Bill and the formation of AA. And I had no idea about that. I mean, I just, even as an addictionologist, knew kind of just the basics of AA. So this was really a deep dive into its origins. And we'd love to hear more about. So so it is a deep dive. And, and William James came from a very prestigious, wealthy family. So his one of his younger brothers is the novelist Henry James. And he had two other brothers, and then he had a younger sister, Alice. And it was a highly accomplished family. They had a lot of money, but there was a lot of physical and psychological illnesses in the family. And this is before psychology exists as a discipline, as an academic discipline. And William James is one of the most astute observers of human nature that I've ever read, particularly suffering. He suffered immensely with what he described as a pathological melancholia, you know, what we might now call clinical depression, that he very seriously contemplated suicide several times in his lifetime. And perhaps who he had in mind when he was writing varieties of religious experience was his younger brother, Bob, who was what we'd now call a raging alcoholic. He, if we were to use the substance use disorder, he'd probably score a 10 out of 11 or an 11 out of 11. And William James was very close to him, both physical proximity and in terms of affinity. He was very much of his younger brother's caretaker. And so William James himself was never able to solve the mystery of addiction, but he really saw it as a spiritual matter in a kind of way. And what he meant by that, it wasn't religious or anything, but what he said is we human beings have spiritual impulses. And what he means by that is we human beings tend to look for connection. We look to expand. We look to extend out to other particular people or to the world or the universe, the cosmos. And we also look to expand within ourselves. People who struggle with addiction, I've always said, are some of the most philosophical people that I know. And they're some of the sort of deepest thinkers and seekers that I know. So in this book, Varieties Religious Experience, that William James published in 1902, he's concerned with looking at people for whom spiritual impulses burn like an acute fever. These people are really illuminated by it. And he says, you know, the Christian saints are examples of that. But he also gives all these examples from literature and from regular living. And so within there, there are about four or five examples of people who struggled with what we'd now call a substance use disorder or what we might call sex addiction. And these people are able to undergo a remarkable transformation in who they are. And he said they are regenerated, they are rejuvenated, they are reborn. And so Bill Wilson in 1934 was trying to sober up one more time. And so he 
He's in an asylum for the inebriate. He's in the Charles B. Towns Hospital in New York City. He's defiant. And he kind of throws his hands up and says, you know, if there's a God, show yourself now. I'll do anything to have this gone. And he said later that there was like this gust of spirit and his desire to drink was lifted. And so he's relieved not long after he's thinking, oh, my gosh, am I going insane? Am I hallucinating? Because he probably was going through severe alcohol withdrawal. And he probably had been given belladonna at the time, both of which might cause hallucinations. So his good friend gave him this book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, and it had a profound impact on it. Reading stories about people like him who were able to change and, again, become, I love the language of regenerated transform, rejuvenated, and go on to live very different kinds of lives because alcohol or carnal mirth is what one person suffers with, so sex addiction, no longer burns as their, the expression is their habitual center of personal energy. It's been transformed. And so that really spoke to Bill. And what James said was a higher power plays a role in that. But that's where we start to run into mischief about, well, what is that higher power? Wow. Yeah, that's so interesting. What an interesting story. Like it just pulls you right in. And so there, therein lies the beginning of AA, right? As Bill sobered up and then realized that this transformation can occur and for him, he had tried and failed and tried and failed mm-hmm. to sober up and it hadn't worked. So how do you make sense of, well, I guess this is a different line of questioning, but the spiritual reckoning that occurs, is that is is that the key, you think, to, to AA or to 12 steps? Is, is this realization that it's out of your control and something else has the power to lift it from you? Or is it a personal spiritual transformation and decision that that you no longer need to be in that space? I'm going to go with door B. Um, that it That is one of the things that William James says is that a person has to have a willingness to be transformed. And so when he talked about people who have these, he called them conversions. In many ways, Bill Wilson had a, a conversion. He wanted to drink, wanted to drink, wanted to drink, and suddenly it was lifted from him. It's no different from Saul going off on his horse to Damascus and gets knocked down, and now, now I'm Paul and I'm a Christian. Bill Wilson experienced something like that. And William James says, well, as a scientist, as a physician, as a psychologist, those experiences don't license us or don't provide support for the hypothesis that a God causes that. It feels like something from outside came and just kind of swept through you. So this is where psychology is in its infancy. And William James says, you know, people have at least three regions within them. There's the conscious mind, that the rational mind that has a guard dog quality to it, that's always kind of patrolling and keeping down what might ever be in the subconscious or the unconscious. But he says there's this trans-marginal region. It's in between there. And he says what happens is people start thinking about things. Like Bill Wilson must have thought, oh my gosh, I really need to stop drinking. I want to stop drinking. I'm going to try to stop drinking. He must have been thinking about that for years and years and years. But at some point, that thought of I must now stop, it's now or never, James might say that rocketed right through his unconscious, through that transmarginal region. And it feels almost violent. And it feels like something so big couldn't have come from me. It had to come from without. And Bill Wilson had been raised in a Calvinist background. So what was most familiar to him as an explanatory framework was a Christian notion of God. And what James says is, well, that hypothesis that God caused it 
works for this particular person. It works for Bill Wilson. It works for other people. But he said, the most we're licensed to say is that a conversion is a psychological process. So what that means is any person can author their own conversion. But what James says is there has to be a couple of things happening. And one has to be the belief that there's something bigger and better than just this way of living. And that view that I could be a better person, I could be a better self, there's more to me, there's more to life, James says, that can be a higher power. So what he includes as higher powers are ideals of truth and beauty, moral principles, a sense of human decency, anything that is expansive and that reaches out or reaches deeper into a person. He says, anything larger will do if only to help you take the next step. And so to have a willingness to try to do something different. So really, for someone to undergo a remarkable change like Bill Wilson went through, in which many people say, I never had that big aha moment, but I realized I've been slowly changing over time. That's a conversion as well. But what needs to happen is someone needs to know about the recognize and accept that my life right now is incomplete. It feels wrong. It feels it feels not how I want it. That parts of my life are out of control, which isn't to say you're out of control about everything, that you're powerless over everything. And he said, most importantly, in order not to get stuck in just the wrongness, that infinite loop, I have to have a positive vision or a positive ideal, he says, that I long to compass, that I can orient myself towards and start moving towards that. Because if you don't have something positive and you try to you know, stop drinking just by a negative, by deprivation, I can't have this, it's, I can't do this anymore, most likely you're going to fail because you can't just live in the negative. You need to live in the positive. So higher and friendly powers are whatever we take them to be. And there will be as many higher and friendly powers as there are individuals in the world because we can each have our own. But for some, the God hypothesis works. For others, it is a belief in a better self. For others, it is just a sense that maybe there is, like Carl Jung talked about, a cosmic consciousness. And I just, I need to kind of hook onto it in a kind of way. For us as physicians, when we're referring a patient to AA, because we get that pushback when they say they don't like this dogma. And also, what, yeah. what about the power of just the group? We talk about that a lot too. That yes. Part. And, and I think that's a huge part of it. So I think one of the things that AA gets really right, I think AA gets a lot of things right. There's a lot of good value there. The God language, the person who helped Bill Wilson write Alcoholics Anonymous or the big book said right off the bat, all this God language is going to drive people away. And so they put the qualifier on it. God as we understood him. Well, thank you. I'm not sure how helpful that is. It does doesn't really expand it too too much further. But it's very hard when you are newly sober and so much is up for grabs and you feel so uncertain to say, now you're going to go into this meeting and there's going to be all this God language and you need to use your emotional and intellectual Taekwondo blocks to keep the God language out and to not feel like you're being dishonest because when you read how it works, you know, what you're going to hear is, well, if you fail, it's because you're dishonest, because you haven't sort of embraced the program in all these ways. And I think what's important is that the group not be 
too dogmatic or doctrinaire. But one of the strengths, but one of the burdens at time with AA is one AA meeting over here might be all that inclusive kind of language. They don't use the God language. And another AA meeting over here is very traditional where we don't deviate. You know, we read the first 164 pages of the big book. And, you know, this is always how we've done it. Someone who struggles in the way that I struggled as a young person going to my first AA meeting at 19 and pretty much running out of there like my pants were on fire was I turned out to be okay but others if that's the only game in town or if they're there um, by court mandate or it's part of the drug court I fear that we set some people up for failure so the more that all of us can do in our capacities to say look that that higher power it isn't this Christian notion of God it doesn't have to be that for you it may be for the person next to you but it doesn't have to be for you but it's a challenge and so one of the ways I describe people early in recovery and I would just describe myself this way. I was a hitchhiker, right? I, I didn't quite have my feet under me. I wasn't quite good at moving forward so well, but I might say, well, I see what Paula has and I'm just going to kind of ride in her draft for a while or catch a ride with her until I start to feel a little trust in myself to know what might be a higher power for me. Because I think one of the things that gets lost with a substance use disorder really quickly is trust in myself. And if you don't have that, it becomes very hard then to kind of, I don't know, tether yourself or set an anchor to connect to something that could function as a higher power. Because, well, if you are the ones who, who are choosing it or generating for yourself, well, look how you screwed up everywhere else. Why would you think this would work. So we, we really need to borrow liberally from each other. And I think the best AA meetings are ones where it is kind of a rich banquet of different notions of higher power and, and different ways to do things because the steps are meant to be recommendations. You know, they're, they're not meant to be like a standardized test. You must do it in these orders or a sequence course bio 101 and then bio 102. I mean, that's not how we move through life. And some people want a lot of, they need that regimented strict order and other people are just going to rebel against it. You know, you tell me I have to do this and I'm going to, you know, flip you off or somehow otherwise disagree with you. Yeah, I think that's what we hear a lot of from folks that we encourage to try AA or other 12-step group. You know, definitely the God language, like you're talking about, that really resonates. And even saying sometimes, you know, God can mean anything. It can be universal truth or goodness, or it can be, we still get people go, really? Because that's not what we hear. So I love that you point out that different groups have mm -hmm. senses of adaptation to that language. And I, I would think in, in your lines of work, you maybe would start to hear about, I know there are really good meetings over there, or, you know, yeah, I, I've absolutely. heard, I mean, that you'd get a little better at trying to direct people or to direct people to other self-help programs. I mean, I think the strength of any self-help program, you know, yes, when you help others, you help yourself. So there's that kind of narrow kind of self-interest thing to it. But I think we come to know ourselves, we come to have self-knowledge in part by coming to see and understand how others see us. And I think that that's a really valuable, important dynamic in self-help groups, because often 
oftentimes we come into those rooms and, you know, the term was ego deflation from Bill Wilson. And if I could can two terms that are affiliated kind of with AA, it would be that ego deflation and rock bottom. Those are two terms I would happily just knock out of the way. But to say we oftentimes come in unable to trust ourselves because we have such distorted views of sort of who we are and what we've done and for what perhaps has been done to us that the kind of work on self that needs to happen there is so multi-layered that we need to do it with others. We can't just do it on our own because our so ourselves are social. You know, who I am is in large part a function of the people with whom I'm in relationship. So as you know, can be really hard with people early in recovery who are trying to change their using behaviors and they realize I need to change all of my friends because all of my friends are using or they sabotage me or I'm in, you know, this toxic relationship where I'm a disloyal spouse if I if I'm not using or drinking with my partner and suddenly there's like all of that gets layered on. And so I think the mutual support groups really do help people to just kind of slow things down and, and and people who have longer sobriety can, you know, act in some ways as role models. You know, if, if when I hear someone who used more than I did and was in much worse shape than I was, and I see what they're doing now, and I see, wow, I respect them so much, it maybe gives me a little bit of hope that maybe I can do that. Or if someone takes an interest, whether I sink or swim, I must matter some if someone's noticing me. And that can be an epiphany, a conversion for some people who maybe feel like they have absolutely no worth at all because they traded it all away or it was taken away from them. True. And we know that's true. And we those are some of the reasons why we think 12-step facilitation works so well and has the best data for retention and sobriety. So I have two questions. One is what do we say to folks who feel triggered in the setting of people retelling their stories? So I hear this from people. They say, well, I don't want to go and sit in a group where everyone's talking about, you know, they're drinking or how they were using and how bad their life is. I don't want to talk about those kinds of things. It triggers me. Seems to be more like opiate users. Don't we hear that more? Like hmm. Paula, with those. yeah, I'd say so more. And but also AA. But I think it depends on the person. Just some personalities, like I don't want to. I just want to move on. You're like I don't want to stay in that space. And I'm just wondering what your response would be to that. Yeah, that that that's a great point. And again, that can really vary from meaning to meaning. Because one of the things I say when you share in a in a meeting and AA, you should share your experience, your strength, and your hope. But if all of it is on the kind of you know, sometimes they'll say the drunk a log or the use a log, then that isn't productive. And so then, you know, because AA is the people in a particular meeting very much gets its ethos from the people within there. I mean, that's when you want to have people with longer term sobriety kind of deflect and redirect and say, we all know what we did. And some of us are probably still really ashamed of what we did. But how did we transform that? You know, how do you kind of change the trajectory of the share? And I think some people do get stuck. And I think that's getting stuck in the negative, you know, everything that was wrong. And if they keep rehashing it in that kind of way, it becomes that feedback loop. And then everything is always going to get reduced down to it. And so I, I think 
again, I worry about asking people newly in recovery to have to, you know, get those defensive blocking moves to be able to say, yeah, that person always is going to go to what they were doing back in 1972. And, you know, how much have they really changed and instead turn their attention to people who have really changed, who maybe did everything that guy did in 1972 and worse, but now look at them over here. So it is a matter, I think, of of where we direct our attention. But still, I worry how much that puts on a newly sober person or a person who is still in and out. That's where other members of the group should step up. Yeah, that's great. I hope I hope that happens. I think it does. I just think these are some of the defense mechanisms we're hearing back in resistance to the recommendation. Yeah. As we learn, like you said earlier, knowing what are the good moderated groups in our area so we can direct, especially new patients or ones that we know are particularly vulnerable. Yes. Well, and I think that's why I think there should be particular groups. I mean, I think there should be groups for people who want to identify as men, people want to identify as women, people identify as trans or LGBTQ. And I think sometimes it is important to have NA meetings that are for narcotics or other drugs that are different from alcoholism, because I don't know, tell me if if you think this is accurate all my evidence is anecdotal because I'm a philosopher, but hey, I digress. There's still more stigma to some addictions than others. I think alcoholism has gotten, I'm not going to say respectable, but less stigma. And I think that there are still huge chasms of incomprehension between people with different addictions. You know, your nice garden variety alcoholic, if there is such a thing, is going to have a very hard time understanding some dimensions, if not most dimensions, of an opioid user who's using knowing that it's probably laced with fentanyl and whatever else kind of stuff. And what do you mean you've overdosed? Why wasn't that enough? And so I worry about in really big meetings that there's that those gaps and that some people find themselves falling into them so that what might be more of a welcoming environment still feels like this is where people are supposed to get me and I'm feeling like I have to explain and I know they're not getting it. I don't know. Is that what you what you hear? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a pecking order, you know, unofficial pecking order among mm-hmm. substance use. And I think you're definitely right. And that comes into play. I wasn't planning on bringing this up because we know theoretically what's supposed to happen. But often folks who have an opioid use disorder are taking a medication to help with cravings. And in some older fashioned AA group or rhetoric, though, that's not sobriety, right? So to be on an opioid agonist, and so they can get judged or stigmatized for not really being clean. using Yes, because they've traded one for another. That's where you see a clash between harm reduction and hardcore, old-fashioned, abstinence-based only, where it wasn't just something like a medication-assisted therapy that was suspect, but it was any kind of psychiatric drugs for dealing with other conditions where those were no-no too. And you're like, oh, what are you doing? Which in some ways is antithetical to what Bill Wilson recommends early on in the big book. And he was under the care of a physician. He was under the care of a medical doctor. And there are some things for which you need a medical doctor. And there are other things for which you might need a psychologist. You might need a social worker. You might need some kind of meditative practice. You may need this because addiction is, you know, simultaneously a material, social, spiritual condition all at once informing each other. So, you know, any kind of absent-based group that takes that really, really hard line, I think is one that's actually not being in the spirit, certainly not of William James and not even in the spirit of a more narrow kind of 
traditional AA. That's a and huge problem. Right. And there's, to be clear, AA has come out with a pamphlet dating that they support medications that are prescribed by providers for the wellness of their participants, right? But but that took a while. And it also took Hazelden for a, a good long while, then we might want to say, to get behind that. And, you know, Hazelden, so usually I'm in Minnesota and Hazelden is about 75 miles up the road from me. And it's the flagship inpatient treatment center. Um, and it took them a long time to get on board and they exported what What's called the Minnesota model. So a lot of treatment centers were following what Hazelden, now Hazelden Betty Ford does. So I'm glad they finally got on board with that. But there was such a long time where they weren't. And then when you take a look to, you know, the other place where medication-assisted therapies are really questioned is in drug courts. Uh, and, you know, it's good that these are changing. You know, we mm-hmm. still hear, I know Darlene does frequently too, we have patients who come in and say that their sponsor found out they were taking buprenorphine and there was some fallout from that. But I think it's becoming more rare. That's, I, I'd, I'd love to hear that because I think drug courts that are well-run and the people who run drug courts tend to be such stellar individuals who who want to help people who who are on the front lines and they see sort of what's driving crime and to 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 hear that that is now changing is just such a an important an important change because those diversion programs are so crucial absolutely so along that line so this was my other question treatment or drug courts much like AA, although there's higher odds and consequences with drug court, have the same culture or philosophy that of black and white. So you're either abstinent or you're not. And I don't think that's really true for AA because the only requirement to come to AA is a desire to not drink or use. But I think a lot of people report that they feel deep shame and maybe just self-ostracization if they do slip or relapse or return to use. So how do we approach that in a world where harm reduction is becoming much more acceptable and recognized as life-saving as people have to move towards their own goals and may not be ready to be completely abstinent. Or we just recognize that addiction can be chronic and relapsing for some people and it takes them a while to reach their goals. How do we say that to people when they're like, well, I made it to 89 days and then I returned to drinking and I had to go back to zero and they feel this sense of shame and don't want to go back and face their people. Oh, I know. I The counting in AA has always made me nervous, even though I identified how long I hadn't been drinking. I both want to pay attention and I don't want to pay attention to it. Because the idea that you go back to zero in the sense of has nothing about you changed? I mean, someone who maybe hasn't had anything to drink and then has one drink, I'm inclined to say, oh, I don't think you have to set the reset button for that. Even someone who has, you know, a slightly shorter time, you know, maybe a a longer time, you know, a week or so, I guess I'd want to say, and then they come back, I'd want to say, well, you know, what did you learn? I mean, how how did that go for you? And you don't lose the fact that you saw that you could do it for that amount of time. You you maybe see what your new high water mark is, and you can get back there. So the idea, though, that you just boom, slam all the way back down, I think is so dangerous. But I, I think that that is a lot of the internalized shame because oftentimes many people will say, I'm stopping drinking or using for my wife, my child, my parent, my sibling, my dog. I mean, all these other, it takes a while, I think, for many people to say, I'm doing it for me. So they, they're already, they've heaped on all of these actual or imagined expectations from others. And so then they have a recurrence, they have a relapse, they have a slip, you know, whatever your preferred language is there. And they feel like they've let everyone down 
And maybe they catch a glimmer that maybe they've let themselves down. But the question is, what did they do in light of that? For me, it's always, yes, you have done this and it provides an opportunity. What do you, what are you willing to do? Are you willing to recommit? Are you willing to put maybe more guardrails up so it's less likely that you'll, you know, go off over here? And you know, I don't mean this in a flip way. I know that I stopped drinking many times and I started drinking many times plus one, except for this last time. But I learned something each time. And, you know, maybe I started to have a little faith that I could maybe go a little longer next time. You know, I, I think about faith. Faith isn't in some providential being or God or something like that. Faith is just a working hypothesis. It's a what if. So my having faith that I might be able to go for 24 hours, that faith helped to make the fact that I go 24 hours. And that fact fortifies my faith that maybe next time I can go another 26 hours. And so the idea that people have to start to come to have some faith in themselves. And so even if they've got one day sober where they hadn't had one day sober before, they did something. They did something different. They did something perhaps better for themselves. They can have faith that they can do it again. And then they can take the steps to try to make it be so. Love it. So what can we as addiction medicine, healthcare providers and our listeners, mm. what can we do to facilitate better understanding of AA and hopefully encourage people to try it? Because we know there are many paths to recovery and AA might just be what could work for this person. Right. Or AA may be the only game in town. So usually I'm in rural Minnesota where AA is the only game in town. So how do you, if that's the only option, how do you make it work? And I, and I think in s some ways, many of us go in there already with a chip on our shoulder. We're in our defensive stance. And in some ways we may just have to be uncomfortable and be willing to, I don't know, give the program a chance because then that makes it seem like the program is something separate from the people. To see people who have struggled in similar kinds of ways that people can and do change all the time and that actually every single one of us is changing all the time. We're never static. We're never stuck in one particular way and that what we need to have isn't just wishing that things were different, but a kind of willingness and willingness always has to be partnered with action and that great change can happen gradually. So, you know, I always worry in AA, you know, if you only read the first 164 pages and it's a lot of it is Bill's story, it becomes kind of normative that, wait, I've got to have one of those big aha kind of moments. And if you never have one of those, you might be sitting there thinking, well, maybe I really don't belong here, or maybe I'm not ready that, you know, I haven't hit rock bottom. And just to say that people are going to change at different speeds. And one of the things that each of us has to come to know is how we're changing and to be in some ways patient with ourselves that we're not going to change overnight. We didn't become addicts overnight. And so the path out of addiction doesn't happen overnight. And if that's what you're waiting for, probably not going to happen that way because we have to, we have to author our own sobriety. We, we author our own lives. That doesn't mean that we do it solitarily, but we do it with others. And so I think if, if addiction is anything, it is something that cuts off connections to other people and cuts off deep connections to your own self. You become a stranger to yourself or you lose yourself. And so how do you invite people to kind of be patient and, and kind and loving with themselves to begin to make a new and different self, particularly when perhaps many of us talked about shame. The expression low self-esteem doesn't begin to cover what it is that people with severe addictions have. They, they have been steeped in shame 
And, and I think William James is helpful here. So he wrote this wonderful essay called Is Life Worth Living? And it was really addressed to, in particular, college-age students who were really struggling with whether or not they should kill themselves, like he himself had really wondered. And he said, if you're willing to kind of believe that maybe life is worth living, your belief and your faith that life might be worth living will make the fact that life is worth, worth living. It's something that you do. And so how to maintain that kind of openness to possibility, to live on maybes. Maybe I can do it this time. Maybe I'm going to screw up again, but maybe this kind time I can. That's the only thing is to have that, that willingness, to have that faith, to live on possibilities. And by living on possibilities, you make new facts, you make new actualities. And we see that all the time in mutual help groups. And we see it in individual counseling. We see it with medication-assisted therapies. All of these are just different tools. And I would say as many resources are out there, people should take advantage of every single one that they have. Don't leave any unused because you don't know what might work or what two things might work really, really well together. Some AA may help, but maybe we need something more over here. And addicts are persons and, and we lose our humanity at times through our addictions. And at times we're treated as if we're not fully human. We're the overdose. We're the drunk. And I think one of the best things that can happen sort of with first contact with people struggling is that you acknowledge humanity because I think a lot of us stopped acknowledging our own humanity. We thought we were too damaged or, you know, not even good enough for that acknowledgement. And that's very poignant, you know, to say that something as basic as recognition and acknowledgement of another person's humanity is a crucial first step. And that always wants to make me cry when I say that, because it just, it's both so basic, but it, it is so profound that addicts are human beings struggling and muddling along in some very obvious kinds of ways, but also to acknowledge that plenty of people are struggling and maybe not so obvious ways. And for me, it's always just try to be more kind with each other and be more kind to yourself. Well, that is really profound. I, mean, I don't think either Darlene and I could say anything in response other than people need to rewind, you know, the rewind button, 30 seconds on your phone, hit that a few times and just listen to that, what Peg said a couple of times over and over again, because it was really profound. And it brings us full circle because at the very beginning of this conversation, you talked about suffering and William James coming to the table with this whole story, uh, you know, philosophy based on his own suffering. And here we are at the end of it. And the basis of addiction is suffering and isolation. Like you said, this offers just one of many, but a very well-studied, international, accessible, and community-based and free, for the most part, tool for people to find a sense of self and find comfort in those. And then it's also a transformative program. And that's what I find so incredible about AA as a practitioner is to watch people go through the process of spiritual transformation as they go through AA. And it's really incredible. And I, I'm envious because I'm like, I wish I actually think there should be AA for for everybody in some well, way. Well, if everyone had if everyone paid as much attention as people in recovery do to how they're living and who they are and what they're doing and what their commitments are, I think part of the problem, this would be another discussion about sort of the dangers of running on autopilot. That, you know, we all get so busy, we run on autopilot. Some of us may be doing very well in our professions and all that, but we're running on autopilot. And then we wake up one day, it's like that talking head song. You know, this isn't my beautiful wife. What would, this is my life. And, and I think a lot of people do that. And then they have, you know, they catch glimpses of that and they're like, oh my gosh. But people in recovery, the best recovery are living with a 
passionate commitment to being attentive, to being attuned, to not taking things to granted, not running on autopilot, and to ultimately inhabit or have as what they orient their lives around gratitude. And so when when you are oriented around gratitude rather than grievance, the world expands. So we're, we're right back to that higher power, right? Gratitude is expansive. It's generative. It makes it it just keeps getting bigger and extending more and grievance just always makes you hunker down and you know hold on more tightly so if people just had more gratitude even for the simple things i mean that's something that is really overlooked but i know you know social scientists and 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 psychiatrists or psychologists and neuroscientists are starting to look at you know how does even keeping something like a gratitude list how does that change your brain? How does that change your thinking process? And everybody can do that. So, you know, Paula, I'm with you. I mean, I feel grateful that that I get to do this work and be attentive and attuned and not running on auto, autopilot, but anyone can do it. And, and I think everyone should do it. I mean, how do you be alive to yourself? How do you know yourself? And how do you then become more open to possibility? And there you have faith. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I I mean, personally, I feel really inspired by the conversation. So I'm really grateful that you were able to join. And I'm going to take many of the things you have said into my practice um, for the better. So I, I'm really grateful for you to join us. I know you're you're a busy person. So thank you very much for joining oh, us. Oh, thank, thank you for having me on. And, and thank you for what you both do and for what your listeners do. I think there's just no greater gift and responsibility than to be present to others. And and you all are being present to others who perhaps are in acute suffering and and you're helping them to to try to live with dignity. So thank you. Thank you so much. This was a fantastic conversation. And check out Dr. Peg O'Connor's book, Higher and Friendlier Powers, Transforming Addiction and Suffering. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on this show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.